This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Should it be tougher to amend the state constitution? Voters will answer that question this election by voting on a proposed amendment to the Constitution. Amendment 71 would raise the bar, as proponents frame it. The fight over this has gotten intense, to say the least, and we're going to debate the measure today. Josh Penry is a former Republican state Senate minority leader and a supporter, and Elena Nunez is an opponent. She's with Colorado Common Cause. Welcome to both of you. Good morning. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. So, Josh, before we get into the mechanics, big picture question for you. Why should it be harder to amend the state constitution? Well, Colorado has one of the easiest constitutions in the United States to amend, in fact, the easiest. And a constitution exists to re- protect core rights and core values, and those those rights and values shouldn't be uh, easily taken away. And because of the easiness and the ease with which you can amend the Constitution, our Constitution, as many editorial pages that have endorsed Amendment 71 have put it, has kind of become this this dumping ground for special interest groups to, to, to push fads and trends and, and gimmicks and all sorts of other things. And so uh, our proposal is a simple, simple one. It just says that it should be more difficult to amend the Constitution. If you want to change the state's foundational document, you should demonstrate some support across the state of Colorado. Okay, and explain how that would work and how it differs from the process today of putting an amendment on the ballot. Colorado is one of the few states where, through the citizens' initiatives process, the rules for amending statutes, simple statutes, are the same as amending the the Constitution. And so what happens is groups, all things being equal, cost is the same, effort is the same. They're putting the bulk of the proposals trying to get them in the Constitution, where something is essentially forever. And so what our proposal does is differentiates constitutional amendments from statutes. The rules for changing statutes won't change. But to change the Constitution, you'd have to collect signatures across the state. There is no such requirement now, and, and groups have a tendency to collect signatures only in Denver and Boulder. Uh, and then the second requirement is that in order for it to ado- be adopted and put in the Constitution, you have to win a 55% of the vote. That is versus a simple majority now. And uh, you talk about gathering signatures before something is put on the ballot all over the state. You'd have to get essentially 2% of registered voters from each of the state's 35 Senate districts. Is that correct? That's correct. And that's the way that uh, these geographic requirements are common in the bulk of other initiative states. And the Senate districts is a, is a, is a, is a jurisdictional boundary that ensures really if you want to change the Constitution, you are going to have to go into the four corners and all the communities of the state and give them some nominal stay in the, in the process. Again, it's about 1,500 to 2,000 so, signatures, so, so hardly a significant haul. Okay, the signatures have to do with getting something on the ballot. And then once it's on the ballot and you want to amend the Constitution, it has to have 55% support. How did you settle on that number? It's kind of a, a pragmatic approach. Uh, a number of other states require 60% or, or two-thirds votes. There's a couple of states that actually require a simple majority, but it has to pass in two consecutive elections. Um, and 55% is sort of, it's not as onerous or difficult as those ones, but it's a higher bar than sort of the simple 50% plus one uh, threshold. You know, Governor Hickenlooper, who's a strong supporter of it, um, puts it well. Like, you don't want sort of fat, the fad of the moment to be in the Constitution forever. And, and, and this 55% requirement is a way to ensure that these are sort of broader-based, broader-supported concepts and principles that actually have a place in the Constitution, again, rather than a simple fact. A bit of a nuance here. If voters wish to change the Constitution by uh, amending something that's already there, so changing an existing amendment, or let's say repealing an amendment altogether that's in the Constitution, is there a different bar to meet? 
There is. Um, there's a there's a whole lot of stuff in the Constitution. As we know, more than 150 amendments, and again, because Colorado's Constitution is so easy to amend. And so the decision was made is to make this prospective, is to ke- keep sort of the next, the, to raise the bar on the on the next proposal that comes along. And if you wanted, so if you wanted to change the things that are in the Constitution, you could do it under the, you know, from a vote perspective under the same rules as when they were adopted. So that's a 50% plus one. And so there are things that the, the right loves, conservative loves in the Constitution. Tabor comes to mind. There are things that um, you know, more progressive groups like Amendment 23, marijuana legalization. The decision was made. We're not going to fight about that. Those can be changed, altered, or modified under the same terms as they were adopted. But this is really about protecting um, the Constitution going forward from future you know, special interest onslaughts, which every cycle we see. All right. That's a picture of what Amendment 71 would do. And let's bring in an opposing voice, Elena Nunez of Colorado Common Cause. You've heard Josh Penry describe the state constitution as a dumping ground, uh, perhaps a place for the fad of the moment. Is that how you see the state constitution? No, I would respectfully disagree. And I think it's important to realize that of the 150 amendments to the Colorado Constitution, fewer than 50 were actually proposed by the voters. The vast majority of changes are proposed by the legislature. So the idea that the Constitution is easy to change or a dumping ground is insulting to the voters of Colorado. But I want to address something that uh, Josh just said, because I think it's important for voters to understand. It's actually not true that you can change existing language in the Constitution under the current rules. If you want to put one word into the Constitution, so anything other than a repeal, you need to meet the new vote requirements that it would be established under Amendment 71. So if there were a proposal, for example, to address Tabor in Amendment 23 that did anything other than repeal provisions, it would need to not only get the signature requirements, it would also need to meet the supermajority vote. So what that means is that if Amendment 71 is adopted, we'll be fossilizing the existing provisions of the Constitution as they are right now because it will be so difficult to change them moving forward. Josh, what do you say? This is not factual. So uh, it's it's interesting. There's a sort of an alphabet alphabet soup of interest groups who have proposed this effort and all efforts to make it more difficult to amend the Constitution in its varying degrees th- through the years. You have groups on the right that say that this is sort of rolls out the red carpet to repeal Tabor. You have groups on the left saying that it fossilizes Tabor in the Constitution. The truth, it doesn't do either of them. Tabor specifically, um, that you, you can actually under its own terms debruce the state and all the revenues and keep a government could through a statute. Statutory um, uh, change referendum C, the debrucing effort of a, about a decade ago was a statutory measure, um, and 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 so a, a lot of this is hyperbole. There are, I think, good people, um, but and, and good generally sort of they have they have their own sort of ideological bent and their own uh, perspective but they use the constitution for their narrow agenda and so the the point is if they if groups want to continue to put things in the constitution that there is still a very clear process and it is not as difficult as other states where you require 60 percent of the vote or where there's three times as many signatures required um but we are saying um you know if you want to do it you need to demonstrate a little bit more support and if you don't like the new rules you can always change state statute under under the rules as today and that's the way it should be it should be more difficult to amend the constitution Yeah, in some ways you are incentivizing the changing of statute over the changing of the state constitution. Let's get to more of your opposition, Elena. So I understand that you have concerns around the geographic requirement for signatures. So again, having to gather a certain percentage of signatures from each of the state Senate districts. Yes. And I think it's important to realize that 
Colorado actually has an, a difficult process already. If you compare the requirements in Colorado to other states, although the number of signatures vary, in Colorado, because we only have 180 days to gather signatures, the it actually is more difficult to gather signatures in Colorado than in the vast majority of other states that allow us to amend the Constitution. You're saying that's because of the time yes. factor? Yes. So the number of signatures you need to get per day is actually harder in Colorado than all but five other states. But then when we actually look at the proposal for Amendment 71, it would allow one Senate district, so about 3% of the population, to block a reform from making the ballot that's supported by the rest of the state. So unlike a lot of other states that have these types of requirements where you need to get some portion of your signatures from some of the districts, this says every single district must meet the threshold. And if you come up short in just one district, you won't make the ballot. So an issue with broad support throughout the state, if you are one signature short in one district, won't make the ballot. On the subject of the geographic requirements for signatures, and to follow along with me here, I'm going to bring in another issue because this election, anti-fracking groups failed to get enough signatures to put two ballot measures related to energy development in front of voters. They oppose Amendment 71 because they don't want to make the process any harder. Uh, But oil and gas groups support it. And in fact, they funded about half of the pro-campaign. They say of the signatures that were gathered for the anti-fracking measures, most came from Larimer, Boulder, and Denver counties. And the industry argues there wasn't fair geographic distribution. Here is Karen Crummy, spokeswoman for the oil and gas group Protect Colorado. Weld County, Garfield County, you know, the biggest oil and natural gas producers in the state. You know, I'm not even sure if if any of the signatures came from there. So, Elena, you say that, uh, you know, one state Senate district could sort of block Uh, an effort or an interest that had statewide support. But another way to look at this is, uh, doesn't Amendment 71 force someone who wants to put something onto the Constitution to get voices from all across the state, not just a concentrated number of counties that might not even be close to a particular issue like fracking? Well, certainly, if you want to advance a constitutional amendment, it makes sense to go out and talk to voters throughout the state. And I've never been part of a campaign that didn't do that. But what Amendment 71 does is set the bar so high that one single district, whether it's in Colorado Springs or Denver, could act as a gatekeeper and veto a proposal for moving forward simply by refusing to sign the petition. So fundamentally, you don't disagree with the idea that some other measure than this if it were to force you to get signatures from a more diverse area, you you would agree with that. But you think this is a little too stringent? Well, what I think is that it is good policy to have a conversation statewide. But I think setting requirements that make it impossible for grassroots groups to gather signatures and make it impossible to advance issues and put the Constitution out of reach is inappropriate. And I think the illustration that demonstrates this so well is the Amendment 71 proponents. They made an effort to gather signatures statewide, which is great. I've never been part of a campaign that hasn't. But an analysis by Complete Colorado and Independence Institute found that they came up short in several districts. So if they were trying to follow their own rules and they were in place, they wouldn't have made the ballot. And I think that demonstrates why this is so dangerous. Josh Penry, indeed, this analysis from the Independence Institute, which I should say is uh, it takes a position on this, um, finds that you would not have met your own requirements. What do you say? Well, it's the Independence Institute who, um, let's just say the analysis was bogus and, and happy to discuss more. We've discussed it at length. We went and we collected 185,000 signatures. 
75,000 outside the Denver metro area, a huge volume in all 35 state Senate districts. And we learned something along the way. It actually is not uh, that difficult. Um, to Elena's point that just one signature in one district could disqualify a ballot initiative, you, the immediate rebuttal is the one that that you you, you set up to her. There is already a de facto um, uh, you know, sort of strong man, strong woman, strong arm in this process, and that's Boulder and Denver. You could go in and they have, they control the process. But if you if you miss by one signature today, there has to be a line, and you and you don't qualify. Um, the, the 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 key is that this is this is not unusual or unprecedented or exceptional. Many, many states require some geographic rec, um, uh, distribution of the signatures in recognition of the fact that this, this, the Constitution does, in fact, belong uh, to the, the entire state. And it's easy to say you've never been part of a campaign that hasn't collected signatures. We went into these communities uh, you know, along the Eastern Plains and the San Luis Valley and the Western Slope. They had never seen this before. And, in, and that's why, actually, in some respects, that was the easiest signature to, uh, to, you know, to, to get because folks were so engaged and eager to be part of the process for the first time. Why don't we pick up this debate after a quick break? I'll have you stick with us. We are speaking uh, right now with uh, both sides of the debate over Amendment 71, which has to do with how Coloradans amend their state constitution. And we're speaking with former Republican State Senate Minority Leader Josh Penry from Raise the Bar, which supports Amendment 71, and Elena Nunez, pardon me, of Colorado Common Cause, which opposes this measure on your November ballot. Back in a moment on Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and you know that on the program, we have been debating many of the statewide ballot measures. On your ballot this November, today a debate over Amendment 71, uh, the so-called Raise the Bar initiative, uh, which would change how Coloradans change their state constitution. We are speaking uh, on the pro side for Amendment 71 with former Republican State Senate Minority Leader Josh Penry and uh, against this uh, Amendment 71, Elena Nunez of Colorado Common Cause. And uh, Elena, I'd like to have you address this supermajority requirement. So 55% of voters having to say yes to a proposed constitutional amendment. What do you make of that figure specifically? Well, it's contrary to the whole notion of majority rule, which is that if, as a state, a majority of us believe something belongs in the Constitution, we should be able to adopt it. And I think that, in practice, it will allow well-funded opposition campaigns to block measures that they don't like by driving the vote total down. But I think if you go back and look at the history of Colorado, there are also examples of why having a majority requirement makes sense to amend the Constitution. So in 1893, before we even had the citizens' initiative process, there was a measure referred to the voters by the legislature, and that was to give women the right to vote. And that measure passed with 54.7 percent of the vote. Now, that's a measure that I think we can all agree had enough support to belong in the Constitution, a core right that is appropriate for the Constitution. But if Amendment 71 had been in place then, we wouldn't have seen it. And so I think it's important to realize that Majority rule is also an important element of governance because it allows us to take action when we need to. And the 55% threshold will block off future amendments and make it too difficult to address important issues. Josh Penry, the question of women's suffrage has been raised. How do you respond? Well, we have um, a lot of really formidable uh, women who are supportive of the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce and all. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just sort of stretches the bounds of 
of, of reasonableness. And we've, we've seen a lot of things thrown out by the no side and that's just sort of in, in part and parcel with it. Um, the, well, the, the reality that, is, I guess I'd like to have you address their fundamental yeah. point, which is that if this measure were in place at that time, women's suffrage... In the 1800s, yes, right. Well, I, 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 I can't go back and return myself to the, to the late 1800s and, and to the state of mind, but I, I suspect that uh, things would have, would, have, would, have turned out, would have turned out turned out well, and as, as they should. Um, and, and the same argument, for example, is thrown out about t- term limits. You know, term limits wouldn't have been put in, into effect if, because it, it passed with less than a 55% um, vote. But if you look at term limits, now it has about 85% of the vote. In the case of term limits, again, nothing in this provision re- requires um, or prohibits or limits the ability to change simple statutes. So um, a lot of this is sort of scenario making, and a lot of the things that are in the part of part of the reason, a big part of the impetus, and the reason we have a lot of progressive and civil rights leaders are there. They want to protect rights that exist in the, in the Constitution from some of the battery of things that have have been thrown out there. To the notion of majority rule, I mean, you look how the U.S. Constitution is amended. You know, two thirds votes of the Congress refer back to three fourths of the states. States constitutions aplenty around the states essentially differentiate because there are two. We, we live in a we live in a constitutional uh, system, and uh, both the federal level and the state level, there is a role for a constitution, and there is a role for the statute. Constitutions are effectively forever. So, and and that's not and that's not for speed limits or general operations of governments or sort of more mundane operational things. And what's happened because we create the standard the same, we create uh, an incentive for interest groups to slam things into the constitution. And that's why our constitution is the third largest in the country. That's why we have these conflicting mandates that push and pull and make it hard uh, for the leaders of the state to, to do what they need to do to move, move the state forward. So, Elena, your group, Common Cause, is often viewed as a liberal organization, but you have unlikely allies lined up against Amendment 71. Uh, recently, you appeared on the program Devil's Advocate on Channel 12 on public television, hosted by John Caldera, and um, he's the president of the Libertarian Independence Institute and opposes Amendment 71. You were also on with John Andrews, a Republican who served as state senator and is active in conservative causes. And here's what Andrews says about Amendment 71. It would virtually close out we the people from a petition process that has brought these various reforms, some from the right, some from the left, into Colorado's governing charter. A good friend of mine puts it succinctly. The laws are where the government tells the people what to do. But the Constitution is where the people tell the government what to do. Josh, we're talking about issues that might not be popular with lawmakers. And Elena and other opponents say this makes it too tough to get these issues into the Constitution. What what do you say to this idea that um, uh, an easier process of amending the state Constitution is empowering to the people whose legislature might not be acting in their best interest? Well, John Andrews, um, who is a friend, has has a problem with James Madison. This, these, these issues were debated extensively uh, when in the framing of our United States Constitution, and there the same sort of basic rationale applies here. Um, and and and, the, and and what what he fails to miss is is the obvious why a constitution exists. It exists to protect 
rights. And when majorities, in the words of Madison and, and the founding fathers, when mob rule can rise up and take them on a whim in a moment of, of, of passion, the, 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 the republic or the state is not safe and the people aren't either. And so that's why, for example, to take it from the general to the, to the very specific, you have farmers, the ag community, are broadly supportive of this measure because every few years you have groups from funded by out-of-state interests who are interested in our water who want to undo our prior appropriation system, which gives them water rights. Essentially, the proposal is to take away their vested property rights through 50% plus one. And so that is illustrative of why a constitution, in fact, exists. It exists to protect rights. Uh, as Wellington Webb said in, in, a, in, in a really powerful TV ad, those rights should not be easily taken away by the whims of 50% plus one. Wellington Webb, former Denver mayor. Elena Nunez, what do you make of the fact, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think every living governor in Colorado is in support of Amendment 71. Doesn't that carry a lot of water with you? Well, it's not surprising that there are many political elites who want to see Amendment 71 in place. And that's because the reason we have an initiative process is for the people to address issues when their government won't, either due to a lack of political will or a conflict of interest. And if you look at measures that are proposed, the reason that they are is because our elected officials are not acting. And Amendment 71 would take power away from the people and make it more difficult to hold government accountable. So no, it's not surprising at all to see the politicians lined up in support of Amendment 71. I mean, one argument against Amendment 71, and you've said something similar, is that it takes we the people out. Is that a bit of an extreme argument? Doesn't it just mean that we the people have to meet a slightly higher bar? Well, I think the bar is much more than slightly raised under Amendment 71. The signature requirements alone will make it prohibitively expensive, probably two to three times the cost of an aver- of a current campaign to put something on the ballot. And again, the supermajority vote requirement gives more power to opposition interests to spend money trying to re- you know reduce the vote total. Where do you get that figure that it's going to be that much more expensive? What we heard from Josh Penry earlier is their efforts to try to uh, sort of adhere to their own rules on this and finding it's not as difficult as it might seem. Well, a few things. One, their campaign spent nearly a million dollars gathering signatures, which is more than the average campaign under the current rules, and they came up short. But having run petition drives in the past, I know that if you have to gather signatures in 35 Senate districts, you need to make sure that you have enough in every district, which means having a significant operation to both gather the signatures, verify the signatures, and make sure that you don't come up short in any district. And that's just going to require a lot more time and money and infrastructure, and that costs money. So what we're going to see is if you are an incredibly well-funded interest, you may be able to make Amendment 71 work. You may not, but you can try. But if you are a less well-funded campaign, you're not going to be able to do it. Josh Penry, address that that concern for me. So your campaign has benefited from some of the transfer, if you will, from the oil and gas industry. That's given you some deeper pockets. Does this does this quiet the voice of the little guy or gal? <laughs> well, what, what's, what, there's a, uh, there's a, unify, a couple of unifying factors to the opposition. You mentioned the strained bedfellows that are opposing it, groups on the right and the left. All of them have a couple of things in common. Uh, virtually all of them have a Denver or Boulder zip code. 
and virtually all of them uh, run ballot initiatives and use ballot initiatives as organizations to raise money and consolidate political power. And all of them have huge financial backing from large individuals. Um, Elena's you know, organization, Common Cause, pushed a ballot initiative a few years ago funded by Jared Polis, who's worth you know several hundred million dollars. So the notion that, and, and on the other side is John Andrews and, and folks like Bob Opre and John Caldera, sort of the embodiment of the establishment. Good people, but sort of spare me the notion that that, that you know, the no side is not is not the establishment. In terms of financial support, we do have support from a lot of industries that have been targeted targeted by some of these more insidious ballot initiatives. Uh, the you know, attempts to ban fracking, the healthcare industries, doctors, nurses are big supporters because of the single payer proposals. But you also have groups like the American Association of Retired People (AARP) and and, and small rural chambers of Congress all across the state who are tired of sort of the whims of Denver and Boulder running roughshod over over their over their their priorities and over their values and so um, we we are the, the the coalition on our side is is a diverse one and it really is a a lot of small voices rural leaders who just feel disempowered by the by the status quo Josh Benry very briefly if Amendment 71 were to pass and did so with less than 55% majority, how would that make you feel? Well, we're doing everything in our power to ensure that's that's not the case. But uh, that wouldn't change the fundamentals, which is the policy does make sense. A constitution exists to protect basic rights, important values, and those and those rights and values uh, shouldn't be lightly taken away by by you know by the whims of the hour. Elena, in about 10 seconds, give us your final thoughts. Amendment 71 is an attempt to take the Constitution and put it off limits to all but the wealthiest special interests. Vote no. (laughs) Thanks to both of you for being with us. You heard there from Elena Nunez. She is with Colorado Common Cause and opposes Amendment 71 on your November ballot. And Josh Penry, who is with the pro-campaign Raise the Bar. Singer Bob Dylan has won the Nobel Prize in Literature, it was announced this morning, for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. In 1960, Dylan, then an unknown 19-year-old folk singer, spent the summer in Denver. While he was here, he was accused and almost charged with theft for stealing records. That's according to Timothy Fritz, who wrote a story about this for Westward, and who says he's preparing a documentary on Dylan's time in Denver. Twas in another lifetime, one of toil and blood, when blackness was a virtue, the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Some think of Denver as the Amsterdam of the Rockies, but there's one key difference between the two cities. In Denver, it remains illegal to use marijuana in public. That leaves tourists, especially, with few legal options. As a result, police have handed out more than a thousand public consumption citations in just the last two years. But this election, Denver voters will get a chance to change that. CPR's Ben Marcus reports. It's a sunny fall day, and a handful of marijuana advocates have gathered for a campaign fundraiser on a rooftop bar in downtown Denver. A bartender keeps busy pouring drinks. The irony of that isn't lost on Kayvon Calabari. And now that we can possess and purchase cannabis, we need to be allowed places to consume it uh, in responsible, supervised environments. In places like this. 
That could be a reality if Denver voters pass Initiative 300 this November. Calabari is leading the charge. The pot entrepreneur says it would open just about any business in the city to marijuana consumption. Bars and restaurants? Sure. But Calabari says think bigger. Even yoga studios and laundromats could get in on this. Uh, We'd probably help create a new culture here in Denver and Colorado by making it more acceptable and getting over these stigmas we're talking about that are currently getting in the way of a lot of progress. That's inevitable. Before any of that could happen, a business would need to apply for a license from the city. It would also need approval from at least one registered neighborhood organization. It must conform to the Clean Indoor Air Act, meaning someone couldn't just light up a joint inside. But people 21 and over could vape and consume edibles indoors. Still, that doesn't appease critics. This is a radical proposal that would bring marijuana to any business in Denver. Rachel O'Brien is with Smart Colorado, a group against expanding the pot industry. She sits in a downtown Denver park. Nearby, someone is smoking marijuana. She cracks a frustrated smile at the smell. Ostensibly, this is the kind of behavior that Denver's ballot measure aims to prevent. But how will it be different if I'm walking down Colfax and a patio has marijuana uh, being consumed on the other side of the fence? Or if I'm in Lodo and if you're one floor up from the street level, you've got rooftop smoking. It's the same thing. In fact, it will just be everywhere instead of limited to the 16th Street Mall or a central Denver park. That's an open question. No one is sure how widespread this would be. A key element of Denver's pot consumption measure is that a registered neighborhood organization must sign off. That would be a significant shift in authority from the city to these private organizations, and it gives some city officials pause, like City Councilwoman Robin Kanish. She's not taking an official position. But I will share that I am concerned that there are no criteria beyond the support of one neighborhood organization. We as a city have many health and safety considerations that we like to look at, and uh, I think that this one feels very broad, and that concerns me. Currently, there's only one licensed pot club in the whole state. It's in Nederland, outside of Boulder. Attorney Jeff Gard helped set that club up, but that club is strictly members only. Denver's measure is completely different, which he says could be an issue. I'm supportive of it, very supportive of it. I just recognize that this particular model is more likely to see immediate pushback than the private membership club model that uh, didn't make the ballot. Denver Normal, a competing pro-pot group, failed to get enough signatures to qualify that question for the ballot. Back on the rooftop bar, the leader of the initiative that did make the ballot, Kayvon Calabari, says city leaders could have designed something as restrictive as they liked. But they delayed so long that pot proponents decided to go right to the voters themselves. We have a right to be here. We're not going away, and we're a, we're a pretty damn wide cross-section of society. Um, we, we deserve that same respect, but we have to earn it. 80 years of prohibition of a drug isn't going to turn around overnight. Probably not. But if this initiative passes, good or bad, voters will have again thrust Denver to the leading edge of marijuana policy. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. The final presidential debate is scheduled for next week, although Republican candidate Donald Trump has suggested he might skip it. Our resident poet has watched the debate so far. David Rothman wrote something new for us. It's called Let's Have Real Debates Again. And now, between soap operas and ads, between reality nonsense and sports, after the news, before the latest fads, competing with cartoons, special reports, and on and on, 
into this universe with no discernible relationship to anything that is not bad or worse, producers somehow find the time to skip that trash and insert talk that really matters. The candidates for U.S. president in pointed conversation, poised like batters who aim to hit the ball of argument. There they stand, in glorious array, next to their little desks, prepared to speak. The lights come up, the camera pans away, the crowd applauds, and in a scene unique to our democracy, we are invited to listen to the flower of our nation address a crowd apparently delighted by scandal, fear, rage, and exasperation. All year they've done this, fielding silly questions, striving for the soundbite that insults enough to make the blogs, even the best ones challenged to impersonate adults. And now, the gilded nominees locked in, we stumble pre-election to our screens to watch a season of debates, akin to a lame quiz show on amphetamines. For long gone is the semblance of debate. Recall that when Lincoln and Douglas met upon their stage in 1858, no one watched it on the internet or on TV. Those sinister platforms that make everything they touch into a form of entertainment so someone can rake in cash. Our past is flawed, but it was warm. You had to be there or to read the news. It wasn't like a show of Family Feud or Jerry Springer on a short, cold fuse. It did not entertain by being lewd. Each candidate would open with a speech of a full hour. The other would reply for 90 minutes. Then, to make sure each had had fair say, the first would justify for 30 minutes. They addressed each other point-counterpoint, not some talk show host who fires off random questions that just smother coherent thinking on what matters most. It's not as though there wasn't passion there. The speakers pressed their case with fire and zeal, but they made arguments, not mere hot air. Their rhetoric engaged, at length, the real. And we, too, face real challenges and choices on trade, guns, tax codes, climate change and ISIS, income disparity, Black Lives Voices, Immigrants, the student loan debt crisis, good jobs, fair laws, access to education, pipelines, clean water, crime, prosperity, health policy, and banking regulation. Our brotherhood from sea to shining sea. It's more than anyone can start to gauge in two minutes of ADD eruption. Slogans, whiz-bang insults, soundbite rage, coarse gossip, allegations of corruption, self-righteous character assassination, unfounded claims and charges, yelling, smears, sex talk and finger-pointing, bloviation, innuendos, smirks, half-facts, and sneers. Although, we only have ourselves to blame. Impatient for a reel of gotcha clips instead of arguments, we troll for fame courting democracy's apocalypse. So here's a thought. In the hard aftermath of yelling, make America great again, or else stronger together, when that wrath has cooled off, if we can, let us then sit down and contemplate a different creed in which true conversation matters more than any news bite given our true need. After all, we have done this before. We could do it again. It just takes will. Let candidates speak out their slates again, face to face, and let them speak their fill. For our sake, let's have real debates again.
David Rothman is our resident poet. He also leads the graduate program in creative writing at Western State Colorado University in Gunnison. You can read Let's Have Real Debates Again in full at cprnews.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Ever heard of horned beavers? Can you imagine an elk with antlers spanning seven feet? Well, they both make appearances in Extreme Mammals, a new exhibit at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, in the form of fossils and reconstructions. Some of these bizarre creatures lived right here in Colorado. Nathan Heffel sits down with paleontologist Tyler Leeson, who helped put the show together. Tyler, welcome back to the program. Yeah, Nathan, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, If you're in the West long enough, uh, you'll know the legend of the fictional jackalope. Uh, That's a jackrabbit with antlers, but a horned beaver in Colorado, uh, that also sounds pretty fictional. I know, right? It's one of these (laughs) bizarre animals, like straight out of a Dr. Seuss book. Yeah. and But in fact, we have fossil evidence for these animals. They lived right here in Colorado. Uh, We have horned beavers that lived about 8 million years ago uh, near Salida. And in fact, uh, some of my colleagues at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science have been doing fieldwork in that area where they've recently found some new horned beavers living uh, alongside uh, 14-foot camels uh, and some other really interesting, interesting animals. Describe how this beaver looks. Is, is the horn on, it, on its forehead? Where, where is this? What, give, it a, give us an example. Yeah. So the, these beavers were about the size of a house cat. So they weren't that big. Okay. Um, they, the horns were sort of right between their eyes and just a little bit in front of their eyes. And the horns were a couple inches high. And what was the reason for having them? Yeah, that is one of those questions for any of these weird adaptations in this exhibit. That is the question, why have this adaptation? And in the case of the horned beaver, there were sort of two different ideas that were put out there. One was that it helped these animals dig because these things are are burrowing. They're what's called fossorial. Mm -hmm. And But the more commonly accepted uh, idea now is that it was for defense, so it was defending itself from sort of the, the equivalent of, of, of eight million year old fox and, and coyotes. And we've posted a photo of a horned beaver fossil and an artist rendering of what the animal may look like at CPRnews.org. Odd horns aren't the only strange headgear uh, at this exhibit, are they? No, that's right. There's a, well, there's a number of different types of antlers, uh, horns, and uh, teeth. I mean, so we have some wonderful array of teeth, you know, saber-toothed cats to baleen whales, these whales that have these little uh, fiber-like structures to, to filter their filter their food. There's an animal from uh, this pig, this pig uh, from uh, Southeast Indonesia, uh-huh. uh, the, what's called the Babarusa, the okay. Babarusa pig, that has these giant uh, tusks that grow up and over the top of the skull and in some cases grow back into the skull. And that's not extinct. You could see that today, right? That's right. This animal is still alive today. It's one of my one of the my favorite pieces at uh, at the exhibit. Because again, why would such a structure evolve? And in this case, it's probably sexual selection. It's trying to attract a mate. Many of these features that you see on, on the head, these these antlers and whatnot, are largely found in 
with on the males only. And so these are males that are either fighting other males to attract them, attract uh, uh, the females or just simply attract females. There's also uh, something in the exhibit that would make trophy elk hunters uh, drool. Uh, does that have something to do with uh, attracting a female? Um, yeah, mate? this is this animal, this Irish elk. I mean, this thing has about a seven-foot antler span. So if you think an elk or a moose is big, I mean, this thing puts those to, absolutely to, to shame. This is an animal that lived in... Uh, in Europe, in Northern Europe, as well as in, in Asia. It's a real specimen. It's one of our specimens at the, at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And this is an animal that was with us until about uh, you know 7,000 years ago. So it did not go extinct until very, very recently. Now, how many uh, of, of these uh, fossils and bones and, and things are actually from the Museum of Nature and Science? Well, this is the only piece that, that we have contributed. But one of the great things about this exhibit is that most of the pieces on this display are real specimens. They're real artifacts. Now, how do these animals uh, develop these weird traits? Because typically mammals are pretty much similar. You, you know what a mammal is, but these have taken a different path. Exactly. Yeah, these are extreme modifications. These are extreme adaptations. And so in some cases, it's because of, of, the, of where they're living. So if they're living in the water, the, a lot of these animals will develop flippers uh, for swimming. If they're burrowing underground, they'll develop giant hands and fingernails to, for, for digging. If they're flying, you know, they'll develop their, their, their hands into a completely different way, and, and that is in the form of wings and, and bats. Uh, so that all be, it depends on the environment in which they're living. Now, in the case of, of antlers, that's because of, again, because of sexual selection. That's not because of their environment. That's because they're trying to attract more and more mates. Sort of like the, the, ta- the tail feathers of a peacock. Oh, sure. And you mentioned hands. What do you mean by hands in that? I mean, we have hands, of course. Yeah, and our hands are actually quite an adaptation as well. I mean, we have the opposable thumb. Mm-hmm. If you think of other animals... For the most part, outside of primates, they do not have an opposable thumb. So that is one of an adaptation for us that is, is quite unique. And then other animals, like again, like a bat, they've elongated their hands and then they've spread out this membrane over that hand so they can fly. So are you saying that humans are extreme? Most definitely. Humans are extreme in, in several ways. For example, we have giant skulls that hold a very large brain. So we're, we're incredibly intelligent compared to other animals. Uh, we have, the, of course, the opposable thumb that allows us you know, to uh, make tools and to manipulate different things. Now it allows us to text on our iPhone. <laughs> and then, of course, we're, we're one of the few animals that walk on two legs. We're the only animal that walks, mammal that walks on two legs except for kangaroos, which which hop, of course. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Tyler Leeson, a paleontologist with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. He helped put together its new exhibit, Extreme Mammals, which is currently on display. Uh, Some of these extreme traits evolved as self-defense, recognizing kin, attracting mates. Um, Talk about maybe other animals that that have evolved a similar way. Well, yeah, there. I mean, of course, if you look at all other other animals, this is they're they're convergent on on certain structures. Convergent. So there are animals like 
that we have on display these large armadillo-like animals, the size of a small Volkswagen, Volkswagen Beetle, huh. the uh, the uh, uh, Glyptodon, which have developed these shells, right? And of course, other animals have developed shells as well, like modern-day turtles. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, if you go back into animals that go into the ocean and swim, uh, like whales, they've developed flippers, and you see flippers developing in other animals as well, and that you know, like you know, uh, sea turtles, mm-hmm. and so this is a great example of convergence evolution. There's also a, a whale with legs uh, and large teeth. It doesn't look anything like a whale, but it's still related to a whale. That's right. The evolution of whales is one of those great evolutionary stories. We knew whales evolved from a land mammal, and we knew that based on who they're related to, their most closely re- living relative are hippos. So we knew they evolved from something that walked on, on the land. And they're one of these groups that have a wonderful fossil record hmm. documenting all of those changes going from a, a land-based animal to a purely uh, ocean-dwelling animal. And so we have several of these fossils on display at the, at the museum, uh, again, showing sort of these intermediate morphologies between an animal that would be larger living on the land to one going into the ocean. So hippos and whales related? They are related, and they're what, they're, they're, they form a group that's called whippomorpha. <laughs> whippomorpha. Whales and hippos. I mean, who <laughs> says that scientists don't have a sense of humor? Right? <laughs> right. Speaking of, of the hippos and large animals, what is the largest mammal in the exhibit? So the largest mammal in the exhibit is this animal called Indracotherium. And in fact, it's the largest land mammal to have ever have lived. And it lived around 25 million years ago in um, modern-day Mongolia uh-huh. and in China. And this thing was about uh, 15 to 18 feet tall and weighed about 20 tons. And its modern relative is a, a rhinoceros. All right. And, and visually, it's just imposing at, at this at exhibit. Anytime you can walk underneath of the animal and look up and see its belly, I mean, that's, that's an imposing animal. It's very large. Uh, briefly, I, I want to talk about how your exhibit also explores extreme extinction, uh, noting that mass extinctions have occurred at least five times over the past 500 million years, with a sixth possibly occurring right now. How so? That's right. I mean, we're very likely entering into Earth's sixth uh, mass extinction. Um, there's many probable causes for that. Uh, you know, just habitat fragmentation, um, overpopulation of humans, hmm. for example. There's 7.3 billion humans on, on the planet. And, for example, right here in Colorado, if you were to go back even 10,000 years ago, there were a lot of animals that are no longer with us today. We had mammoths and mastodons roaming around, giant ground sloths, lions, uh, cheetahs, you know, all of these, what we think of uh, of African animals, we had here right in, in Colorado up to about 10,000 years ago. And then when humans arrive, there's a strong correlation between the arrival of humans and the disappearance of these animals. That's not to say that humans are the sole cause. There were other things going on. Uh, there was climate change. There was a number of other natural processes going on. But uh, um, there's many people that would argue that uh, it's largely humans and uh, that are the result of this mass extinction. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Paleontologist Tyler Leeson helped put together the Extreme Mammals exhibit at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. It's on through January 8th. And who knew that hippos and whales were related? We have some photos of these extreme creatures at cprnews.org. Perhaps you have gotten your blue book, that voter guide, in the mail. 
If you have, you know it's a doozy with a lot of important statewide ballot measures this election. And CPR News wants to answer questions you might have about them, whether it's raise the bar, which we debated today, or medically assisted death, which we covered in the other day. Uh, Send us your questions and we'll put our team of reporters and producers on the case. Email news at CPR.org, news at CPR.org, and we welcome questions about any of the statewide measures. Finally today, a song from John Denver. We've been hearing his music this week as fans of the late singer-songwriter gather in Colorado to remember him. Listener Courtney McCall of Loveland told us that her favorite tune is The Eagle and the Hawk. producer is dancing in the sound booth as we speak. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.